with singing this evening. Thank you, Anna, for playing. I uh, love both of those hymns. The words to that hymn, Christ, our sure foundation. And he is our sure foundation because he did pay it all. And uh, that's the truth that we are looking to uphold, the truth we are looking to proclaim as a church. And we will forever proclaim that truth, that Jesus paid it all. I love this, the words to that um, stanza where it says, There's nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. Nothing at all. Nothing good at all that he can claim, that we can claim for uh, that grace which pardons, that grace which saves and redeems us from sin and washes us white as snow. I love the words to that old hymn. And uh, that is a perfect segue to what we're, I want to talk about this evening. Uh, if you, we are in First Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4 this evening. This is part number 7 in our exploration, we might say, of the pastoral epistles, uh, which is First and Second Timothy and Titus. We're making our way through this first letter to Timothy, and then we're going to jump into Titus after that, and then we'll end the series by going through Second Timothy. Uh, last, or two weeks ago, um, we were looking at the roles that we play in the church, especially the roles that we play in the church as the church upholds the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel, and that's what the role of the church is. You can see that in uh, 1 Timothy 3.15, which, it, where Paul describes the church of the living God as the pillar and the ground of the truth. And we're looking at the roles that we play as men and women in the church. But I want you to look now at 1 Timothy chapter 4 because at this section, the first 10 verses of chapter 4, it really gives a further insight to what Paul was talking about at the beginning of the whole entire letter. If you remember at the beginning of the letter, he started off by talking about these false teachers and these uh, teachers who were proclaiming false doctrine as he, he describes it, uh, I think it's in verse 6. He, yes, I love it. He describes it as vain, jangling, fruitless discussion, pointless conversation. And he's describing these very teachers so that Timothy might build up resistance to them and to what they are teaching. We kind of noted in the introduction to this series that Paul is sort of anticipating this new sort of wave of church ministry. A new wave where it's not so much evangelization, it's more uh, apologetics, defending the faith, standing firm in what is solid and true, and yes, we might even say simple. And I say that because, as in this first verse, notice what Paul says. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. There's this new wave he's describing. This new sort of movement of heresy that's coming for this church that he has spent so much time laboring for. And use that word which is specific and very serious. He says they shall depart from this faith. It's the original Greek word is where we get our word apostasy. Which literally does mean depart or to turn away from or to, uh, to flee from or even to become faithless. As they were falling from the faith, they were literally losing their faith in the one true God and the one true gospel. 
It's almost as if Paul is describing this revolt against the church and against what he's been talking about for the first couple chapters and what he will continue to talk about to Timothy in the next letter into Titus, which is the sound doctrine of God. The healthy words of the gospel. They're turning away from this. And what are they turning to? Well, remember what he, in chapter 1, verse 4, where he, he talks about that he, he should teach no other doctrine. Verse 4, neither give heed to fables or endless genealogies. And these things that they were turning to, these fables, these endless genealogies, these myths, these vain janglings. Again, we're doing nothing but stirring up strife, stirring up confusion. He says that in verse 4 again. He says, uh, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith so do. They weren't doing anything for the church other than causing confusion, causing speculation, causing others as he goes on to talk about in chapter 1 to shipwreck their own faith. It's a sad state of affairs that he foresees coming. And such is why this letter, as we noted at the beginning and we are continuing to note now, Paul is arming Timothy. He's equipping Timothy, this young pastor, in the simple truth of the gospel. He's not elaborating on a lot of uh, systematic theology like he might do to the Romans. He's reminding Timothy of the simple truths of the gospel. The simple truth that is in verse 15 of chapter 1, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is a simple gospel that he was charging Timothy to preach. This is the simple gospel that we are charged to continue to proclaim. This was the no other doctrine that he was charged to preach. It's almost as if he's saying, Timothy, you can hear all these other things. You can hear all these other conversations. But this, this right here, this is all that matters. This is what's important. Regardless of what role you play, you can be a deacon in the church, you can be a servant here, or you can be an elder, you can be a pastor. Whatever your role is in the church, this is the message that you are to proclaim. This is the doctrine you are to stick to. This is what makes you and keeps you uh, functioning as that pillar, as that ground of God's truth. It's the simple gospel that Jesus saves sinners. And that's his reason for coming into the world. And that's Paul's reason for writing. Reminding Timothy. This is what you're here to do Timothy. This is what you're here to proclaim. And this is where we get into this doctrine. This apostate doctrine. This departure from the faith. It's again. It's nothing more than that. It's a falling away. It's an abandonment. I think again. From the simplicity of God's good news. Uh, From the simplicity of the fact that, uh, verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's chapter 1, verse 15. It's a departure from that. You know, I would say that as humans, we are often simple creatures, but we're also complex creatures. (laughs) Not just emotionally, but um, I think we like to make things more complex than they need to be. If you can... Sympathize with that. You don't have to raise your hand, but raise your hand mentally. <laughs> I, I don't. If, if when you get something new, do you like to try and see how far you can get into it before you look at the instructions, or do you look at the instructions? 
I'm one of the ones that likes to look at the instructions. I don't want to, like, like when I got a new Lego set when I was a little kid, I would be doing it, like, really accurately and pinpointedly and meticulously because I wanted to make sure that my Lego set looked like how it should look. My cousin, his name is Joe, he was a lot more creative than me in that regard. He could get three different Lego sets and make something completely Original. I'm like, I'm so jealous of that because I couldn't do that. I had to follow the instructions. <laughs> he was, I guess he had a more complex mind. I don't know, maybe. Um, regardless, we like things, to, we like to make things more complex at times, I think. If, and I think it's because, again, as we've noted a couple times in various messages in various ways, if we accomplish something that's more complex, we appear more superior than the next person. Look at what we have done. We've, we've accomplished this. I've built this thing without looking at the instructions. <laughs> I've fixed this electrical problem without calling an electrician. <laughs> and I didn't burn my house down. We like to uh, glory... In accomplishing complex things, I think that's human nature to a certain degree. We uh, like to appear that we can conquer something. And I think that's what makes this departure, uh, so is the characteristic of this departure from the faith. We take the simple gospel that Jesus has proclaimed and we turn it into something complex. We turn it into something that has to be uh, 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 finagled and finessed. And I think, really, when you look at it, this is Satan's grand and great swindle that he's pulled on all of humanity. His greatest swindle, his greatest deception, I think, is the notion that this gospel that we have, this gospel that we proclaim, is not as simple as it sounds. It's not as simple as we make it out to be. That when Christ said that this is the work of God, that you believe on him who he has sent, that actually that was just part of the equation and that there's a lot more to it. It's more complex than that. That's Satan's deception, that there's more to it. Yes, there's grace for you, but there's a lot more. It requires your effort and your energy and your exertion. It requires all of that too. It's Jesus paid it all, but not all, just a little bit. And you have to pay a little bit too. That's his grand sham, we might say. The grand sham of Satan is that Jesus didn't actually go all the way for your salvation. It's a little bit more complex. It's a little bit more serious. And I think that's what Paul is going to get to here. That in that complexity that we have inserted through the temptations of Satan, through giving into that deception, through giving into the idea that it's more complex, there's a, there's a bevy, there's a huge uh, flawed notion to that, a distortion of the truth. And that's what Paul is going to move in to talk, to talk about here to Timothy, this distortion of the simplicity of the gospel. The distortion and sort of, we might even say, the adulteration of this truth. And really, as you, if you look at these ten verses that we're going to cover tonight, it's 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 10. He really reduces his conversation to really basic things. Talking about truth versus untruth. Externals versus internals. 
And he shows, uh, I think very clearly, how one outweighs the other and how one leads to fruitfulness and one leads to faithlessness. And really, that's what we're going to talk about. So in verses 1 through 5, first of all, here we have, I think, Paul's discussion about the fallacies of external revision. The fallacies of external revision. Look what he says. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. He starts this discussion... With these strong and forceful words of warning. He says there's something coming as we noted. There's this wave of heresy coming for the church. And he raises the bar for the seriousness of this heresy. By saying not only does it come from the spirit. Not only is this. He says the spirit speaketh expressly. This isn't something that Paul just kind of feels. He's been given this word from the Lord. That this is coming. And notice also how he describes it. He says it's the doctrines of devils. These doctrines of devils is not necessarily like witchcraft or satanology or demonology or anything like that. It, it could mean that. But I also think at its most basic form, this is devilish truth. It's the truth of the devil and the teachings of those who are ministers of the devil. And some that perhaps may not even know that they are. (laughs) And this is what he's talking about. They have given heed to these seducing spirits that have told them to teach this other doctrine. The doctrines of devils. And what is this devilish doctrine? Notice again how he describes it. He calls it seductive in verse 1. In verse 2 he calls it a lie. He calls it hypocritical. And he calls it profane in verse 7. He says, but refuse profane and old wives' fables. He doesn't have much good to say about this doctrine of devils. He calls it for what it is. It's a profane and perverse notion of what the truth is. It's a distortion of the truth. And it's this, uh, this apostasy, this departure, he is very clear, is that this, there's this way of abstinence that is, the, that is the pathway to true holiness. Did you catch it? He says, this is what they are saying. This is the lie. The lie is that they are forbidding people to marry and commanding to abstain from me. So you cannot get married. You cannot have a partner in life. And you also have to become a vegan. <laughs> You have to abstain from certain meats and you can't have any relations with anyone. You see, they were setting up this alternate system of religion. This alternate system of how to obtain righteousness. It's not just Jesus and faith. It's Jesus, faith, and doing these other things. It's Jesus and faith and not getting married and checking yourself into a monastery. (laughs) And becoming vegan, which I would be automatically not able to do. I love brisket. I love brisket so much. We visited, this is not in my notes, and this is just a really bad sideline, but it's okay. Uh, We used to have this place in Florida called Mission Barbecue. 
And I didn't know that there was one up here. That's why a couple weeks ago we visited Mission Barbecue in Harrisburg. And I was so happy because I love good barbecue, good pulled pork, and good brisket. And, man, they have good stuff. And they are awesome. They treat their veterans really nicely. I love it. At 12 o'clock every day. They're not paying me to say this, so it's not sponsored. But at 12 o'clock every day, they stand up and do the Pledge of Allegiance and the, um, what do you call it? Just my mind. The... National Anthem, that's the words I was looking for. They do the National Anthem and everyone stands, it's really cool. Anyways, that's Mission Barbecue. I love good meat. So I couldn't fulfill, I couldn't fulfill this system of false righteousness. I would be kicked out of their system automatically. But you see here how they're, they're, they're finagling the faith of God to require also their external revisions. Do you see that? They're speaking lies. They're speaking hypocrisy. Why? Because they're adding these external matters, these external revisions onto what God has already accomplished. In order for you to experience true religion, they're saying that you have to have these outward changes. You have to have them in order to have this life of faith, this life of religion and righteousness. And Paul is clear. He says, this is nothing but lies. They're speaking lies. Everything that's coming out of their mouth, it's false. Timothy, don't give heed to it. It's, it's baloney. It's malarkey. It's rubbish. It's lies, Timothy. Don't believe or even listen to what they're saying. They're telling you that there's these added conditions on to Christ. There's these added uh, means for righteousness that is uh, uh, by external revision. Don't listen to that, Timothy. This is the fallacy. This is false. And you see, you want to know how to strangle faith? You can see it in in, in Paul's words. You want to know how to sear tender consciences? He says that. He says, they have seared their consciences with a hot iron. You want to know how to do that? You seduce them into thinking that the work isn't done. That the work required for salvation is only partially done. It's not all the way finished. It's not all the way complete. Tell them this lie. The lie is that, 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 that faith is not alone sufficient for salvation. It's yes, you have to believe, but there's also some external things you got to take care of. There's some outward things that you got to be sure and clean up. Before this is true. Something more. Something more than what Jesus has already done. Has to be accomplished. You have to be absolutely pure. Not. uh, Excuse me. Not uh, coming into relations with someone else. Not. uh, uh, um, uh, Not impurifying your body. With uh, with, uh, horrible meats. Or anything like that. You have to be pure. You have to be righteous. You have to adhere to this external system of religion. What we talked about two weeks ago. The incarnation. As the sort of groundwork. The foundation for our roles in the church. Here he's basically saying that they, uh, that these false teachers. These ones that have departed from the faith. The incarnation isn't enough. The incarnation. It was good. But it was only good some of the way. The fact of God becoming like humanity. In order to save humanity. That's not enough for our salvation. Again, it's Satan's grand sham. 
This horrible deception. This great lie. It's the lie of self-sufficiency. It's the lie that you have a part to play in this thing called salvation. A part so big enough that it requires your personal purity first. And it sounds good too, doesn't it? It sounds, it sounds really religious. I'm going to uh, stop doing this and I'm going to start practicing this certain thing. And I'm going to give up all of these things in order to get closer to God. But it's a pseudo-Christianity. Because inherent in that confession, in that confession of abstinence, it's it's really a confession of self-reliance and self-sufficiency and self-salvation. That I'm putting my hope in this idea that I can purify myself, perfect myself enough in order to check that box of righteousness off. And it's actually... The words are even stronger. One commentator said that this, this confession that you have to not get married, that you can't eat these certain meats, is almost like an impeachment of God's wisdom. You're going to God and saying, your wisdom in calling well, these things good, that, that man uh, can get married and have, have a partner through life, that man can, uh, has dominion over the earth, You're impeaching God's wisdom. You're saying, God, you don't really know what you're talking about. And here, this is Paul's message to Timothy, that this is the doctrine of the devil. The doctrine of the devil puts man's salvation in man's hands. Hey, you want to be saved? You want to find and live the justified life? Do these certain things. Don't get married. Don't eat these certain things. Don't listen to this kind of music. Make sure you dress this certain, this certain kind of way. Make sure you do this or that. Check this box or that box. This is what he's saying. This is the doctrine of the devil. That there's something else that's required in order for this thing called salvation. In order for this uh, idea that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In order for that to be real for you. There's something else. You have to revise your external self. You have to modify your behavior. You have to change this certain thing. This is entirely opposite to the gospel of God. The doctrine of Christ. Which instead of putting man's salvation in man's hands. He keeps it for himself. Your salvation is in my hands. I am going to do it. I am going to take your salvation. That matter. That problem of sinners being made righteous. I'm going to take that matter into my own hands. I'm going to fix it myself. That's what Jesus has declared for us. In his good news. His gospel. That he's going to do it by his own doing. And that's what will change the heart. Our efforts at changing our behavior are so meager and puny compared to what Jesus does to our hearts. It doesn't even compare. And again, that's what Paul gets into next. Look at verse 6. Because here, opposed to the fallacies of external revision, here Paul gets into the benefits, secondly, the benefits of internal reformation. Look, verse 6. Or let's start in verse 4. For every creature of God is good. And nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. 
If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. But refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of the life that which is to come. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. So here he moves into what really constitutes true religion. He's, again, now he's going to reinforce, he's going to reaffirm that, Timothy, as you are a minister of the truth, here's what you are to be ministering. Here's what you are to be giving out, tendering, propagating in your ministry. And it, he moves to discuss, again, this true religion. It's opposed to this profanity of old wives' fables, he calls it in verse 7. This silly myths and vain discussions. These fruitless ideas and systems of external revision. It's opposed to all these things. These, these ideas of holiness by behavioral change. He says, these profit little, he says in verse 8. For bodily exercise profiteth little. That's always been a funny verse to me. Because uh, my dad always used to like to use that as his, ex- his excuse not to exercise. <laughs> not to do any f- sort of physical working out or anything like that. He would always say, bodily exercise, profiteth little. All you go into the gym, godliness is where the profit is. <laughs> there might be some truth to that, I don't know. But seriously, I don't know if Paul was necessarily uh, talking about athletics. I don't think he was talking about your workout regimen when he was saying that bodily exercise profiteth little. I think really what he's referring to is exactly what he's just been referring to in verse 3. That there's this idea that you can have this sort of discipline of the body and of the mind and the soul and the spirit that leads to righteousness. It's this idea again of holiness by behavioral change, by bodily exercise. And he's saying it profits little. This idea, this, this uh, idea that you can uh, monasticize yourself, check into this purity school or something like that and become righteous is a fallacy. It's a falsehood. He's saying these external revisions, they have limited benefits. They have limited profit for the believer. And this idea of forging your own Personal purity is a misnomer. You can only do so much to change your behavior. You can only do so much to uh, chase after purity in your own life and in your own strength. Uh, You don't have to raise your hand, but I can testify to this. Just think about what happens uh, in January. We have these things called New Year's resolutions, which are anything but resolutions. <laughs> if you look at the definition of the word resolution, because how quickly do they fall by the wayside? We haven't really resolved to do anything. In our own power, in our own ability and strength, we resolve, rightly so in some cases, to do these certain things. In our own ability and power, they fall by the wayside very quickly. 
my friend in, in Greenville, he is a personal trainer, and he used to always uh, remark to me how full the gym was on January 1st through about January maybe 7th, if we're giving them a little bit of grace. <laughs> and then it would very quickly dwindle. Very quickly, because things come up. Life gets in the way. Our own abilities and strengths and efforts aren't enough. You can't forge your own personal purity on the anvil of personal holiness. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. That's not how it's achieved. You can only do so much to change your behavior and change and and revise the externals. And so belief in that, belief in behavioral training as a means to righteousness, belief in uh, uh, bodily exercise as the means to God's holiness is foolish, it's deficient. It's a lie of Satan. It's a doctrine of the devil. That he would swindle you into believing that there's some sort of complex other thing. Again, this complex revision, it looks like you know, a, a formula for living your best life, for fixing life's problems. But really, when you come down to it, if you're, if you're pursuing your life that way, pursuing righteousness by behavioral change, you're, you're literally putting a band-aid on a gaping wound. Putting a band-aid on a gaping aorta, you might say. If that's a visceral enough picture. Or uh, you want an even more violent picture? It's like putting cologne on a corpse. Or uh, we might even say this. It's in Jesus' own words. You're painting a sepulcher. Remember Matthew 23? And Jesus' long extended diatribe against the Pharisees. He says, you are like whitewashed tombs. (laughs) You might appear pretty and clean on the outside. But inside you are full of dead men's bones, he says. You're painting tombs if you think that these means of outward and external revision are changing your heart. They're not. These things don't fix the true problem. They just mask the greater problem. They mask the deeper problem. And so, uh, essentially, what I see here in Paul writing to Timothy, he's, uh, I think I've mentioned this before or somewhere else, but if you are, uh, to basically to Timothy, Paul is saying, uh, if you are going to pursue after this, Timothy, if you're going to uh, chase after what these apostatizers are chasing after, you're basically shouting swimming instructions at a drowning man. That's what you're doing. You're, you see a person drowning... And you're saying, here's how to swim out of your problem. (laughs) That's not going to work. Shouting and swimming instructions to a man that's drowning is probably going to lead to that man drowning. (laughs) It's going to lead to more confusion, more chaos, more uh, bedlam in that moment. In fact, if a Coast Guard rescue swimmer wants to save you, he doesn't want you moving and thrashing. Because that will likely lead to him having injury as well. When they jump down, they want you to be still. Let go and release yourself into them who will lift you up into that helicopter that is hovering over you. They're not going to just yell down in a megaphone how to swim out of your problem. Here, Paul is saying that to Timothy. These ones who have departed from the faith that are teaching this doctrine of of the devils. They're shouting swimming instructions to drowning people. 
They're telling dead sinners how to be alive in the holiness of God. But they can't yet because they're still dead sinners. It doesn't work. You can't put cologne on a corpse. You have to have it alive again. You know what a drowning person needs? They don't need coaching. They need rescuing. And you know what an injured person needs? They don't need therapy. They need a surgeon. And you know what a, what a dead person needs? They need resuscitation. And here he's saying, this is what Jesus is. This is what the gospel is. It's not therapy. It's resurrection. It's not a band-aid. It's surgery. It's Jesus uh, taking out parts of your life, parts of who you are, and remaking you into what he wants you to be. It's surgery. It's rescue. It's resurrection. It's something completely uh, other than just shouting swimming instructions. And this is what Timothy here is called to preach. Look at verse 6. Put them in remembrance of these things. What things? The things of true religion. The things of the gospel. The things of the healthy doctrine of God. So what then is true religion we might say? It is verse 7 and 8. It's exercising yourself unto godliness, as he says. Exercise thyself unto godliness. Because godliness is profitable unto all things. It's living a life, as it says in verse 6, that is nourished. I love that word. He says, uh, if thou thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith. True religion is living a life that is nourished not by man's words, not by man's ways of faith and philosophies and traditions, but it's a life lived nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine. True religion is, as Paul says elsewhere, the renewing of your mind and transformative grace. This is what true religion is. It's, it's, it's reformation of the heart. It's a complete remaking and transforming of your heart by the grace of God. If you go to Romans, let me just read that verse. Yes, it's the renewing of your mind to be conformed to the image of God's Son. But, he says, and be not conformed to this world... But be ye transformed by the renewing of your... Oh, I skipped a verse. It's verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He doesn't say, I beseech you, brethren, by your own external revision, conform yourself to God's image. By your own ability to abstain from these things and do these things. uh, By your own faith in yourself, be conformed and transformed. No. By the mercies of God. The mercies which, by the way, Paul has spent the previous 11 chapters expounding the fact that it's by grace that we are justified. And that not we ourselves. Because we can't do anything like that. We can't do anything tending towards that. So he says here to these Romans. And Paul here to Timothy. You want to preach sound doctrine, Timothy? Put them in remembrance of these things. Put them in remembrance of the fact that Jesus does this work by his spirit. He changes you. 
from the inside out. The doctrine of the apostates, they would say that you are changed from the outside in. That you, if you adhere to these external revisions, you don't get married. You don't eat these certain meats. You do all these other certain things. These uh, certain critical things, yes, perhaps. You do those first and you're changed from the outside in. And Jesus says, I'm going to change you from the inside out. I'm going to reform your heart. And it's going to look like a life that is so different than anyone else because your heart has been remade. Not by your ability, but by my grace. Not by any other means. One writer, he says, interest in Christ goes first. Then likeness to Christ. Scottish preacher Patrick Fairbairn said that. This is what he is getting after. This is what Paul is getting after to Timothy. Timothy, you want to preach change to your people? Again, what did we note at the beginning? That Paul is saying, yes, this gospel of God is going to result in changes in people's lives. People's lives are going to look differently. But again, it, change doesn't happen by preaching change. It happens by preaching the Savior of all men. He alone has the power to change hearts. To melt the heart of stone as we sung. To change the leper's spots. And wash them white as snow. In whose blood? In whose efforts? In whose sacrifice on the cross? Not ours. And the fact that Jesus paid it all. Verse 10, for therefore we both labor and suffer reproach. Because we trust the living God who is the Savior of all men. We labor after this, Timothy. We chase after this, notwithstanding the reproach that we're getting, notwithstanding all the people who are making fun of us, making light of us, uh, causing us disgrace and indignity and slandering us, notwithstanding all of that, we're laboring and suffering because we know that this is true. That our God is not dead. He is alive. He is not still in the tomb. It's empty. He conquered death. He put death to death. And now we trust in this living God who has made the church, the living church, the pillar and ground of truth, Timothy. This is what you are to put them in remembrance of. This is your message. Because only your people, Timothy, they are only going to be changed as they are built up and put in remembrance and nourished in these words of faith. Systems of behavior modification, they can last, they can change your behavior for a while, but they're going to wear out. Like New Year's resolutions. They're going to fade. They may change your behavior for a time, but they are not going to root you and ground you in the truth. Remember what we talked about at the end of chapter 1? I forget which part in the series is, but we were talking about those who were leaving the faith. We mentioned, he mentions too, Hymenaeus and Alexander in verse 20 of chapter 1. Why? Why did they leave? Because they were trusting in something else. Other than the root and ground of the truth, which is the gospel, that Jesus saves sinners, saves completely and fully and forever. He saves them. These, we talked about them. We don't have to rehash that, that message, but these popular Christian evangelical figures that are departing and announcing on social media that they're leaving the Christian faith. 
I often wonder, what were they really trusting in? It couldn't have been a person. It was definitely something else. It was definitely something other than the person, the living God. You know, that's what makes your faith altogether different as the church of the living God. We don't hold to a creed. We don't hold to a system of religion as the basis for our faith. We hold and believe that there's a person who saved us. And the person who saved us is the person who's ruling and reigning even now. In whose face one day we are going to see eye to eye. As Paul says, we see through a glass darkly, but one day we're going to see him face to face in clear, unblurred vision. Like that song, we're going to take a hand and find it God's. (laughs) When we step on that celestial shore, we believe in a person. Not behavioral modification and external revision those things will fall and crumble and one day if you're believing in them you're going to be like all these other figures who are coming out and saying I can't believe in this anymore well that's probably true you can't because you can't do it on your own your confession is true I just hope they're given a little bit of grace I hope those who are departing they're given some gospel to tell them yeah You can't. You can't keep up this facade of trying to live rightly and love fully and completely and and do all those things. And you were never made to. Jesus changes you from the inside out. This person in 1 Corinthians, I got to read this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I love what Paul says because this to me is the completeness of. Of this salvation which Jesus tenders. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. He says. But of him. Well let me read verse 29. Or actually let me see. Let's read a little bit further than that. Let's read verse 25. 1 Corinthians 1 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling brethren. How not, that not many wise men after the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, but of faith in him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You don't have anywhere to boast. You don't have anything to claim as your own. You don't have anything to say, I've done that part. He's made unto you wisdom and righteousness and redemption and sanctification. He is all of those things for you. This is the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ crucified which changes lives. It's the gospel that Jesus paid it all. All to him you owe, yes. Not for some sort of merit, but because of love. This is what Timothy was to labor and strive after. The simple message of the gospel. 
That Christ Jesus came to save. To be the righteousness. To be the redemption. To be the wisdom and sanctification for sinners. That's what we cling to. That's the message I believe I am called to proclaim. With my life. And I pray that I will be given the boldness and strength and courage and confidence to stand in that message. Even when it is unpopular to do so. As he says later on, in season and out of season. I remember I, when I was ordained uh, last year or so. Um, that was what I told people. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That Christ Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God. I stood up and said this is the message I want to go to the grave preaching. You can have all these other systems. You can preach all these other things. And yeah, we can study eschatology. And we can study all these really intricate details. And systems of theology and the word of God. Those are good. Those are beneficial at times. I want to stick to this. The simple message of the gospel. The simple message that Jesus saves and Jesus redeems and Jesus transforms. This is the life that he says here is profitable unto all things. It's the most rewarding life you can live here on earth. It's obviously the most rewarding life and the life hereafter. That's what he says. He says, having the promise, verse 8 back in 1 Timothy 4. Having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying. The faithful saying is that very thing. That, that all these bodily exercise regimens and programs and, and all those systems, they will fall away. The life of faith, the life of, uh, we could use the Latin phrase, sola fide. Latin in the Reformation for faith alone. The life of sola fide is the most rewarding life anyone could ever live. And this is the life we are called to live. And this is the life that Timothy was called to proclaim. It solidified Timothy here right now, Paul is saying. It solidifies you right now and it certifies your future. It takes care of everything. It's the life of faith. Labor after it. Strive after it. This is true religion. Let us pray.